Hey, guys. Um, just a quick um, um, heads up. You, you may have noticed that um, there's a little bit of work being done on the, um, the parking lots. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> that work really gets big tomorrow. Um, they're resurfacing. I, I don't know whether it's the whole thing, but a, a good portion of it. So um, there may be some inconveniences um, if they're not finished with their <clears throat> their work uh, by Sunday. So just keep that in mind. Um, uh, I I think Brent, we're supposed they're supposed to be done by Sunday, are they not? <clears throat> that means that you'll be parking at Walgreens and um, <clears throat> and we'll uh, come get you. <clears throat> All right, guys, we're back in, um, in Galatians chapter 3. We, um, we've spent a couple of weeks on um, verse 19, uh, actually the first half of 19, because as you may recall, um, in the first 18 verses of Galatians 3, Paul has been demonstrating the superiority of um, the promise by faith uh, as opposed to the law, not only the superiority, but um, that, that it is the only method by which men are converted. Um, or not, method is not a right word. It's the only route to follow if you ever hope to be reconciled to God. It's through faith, not through works, through law. So having, um, having established that in his own mind, he then begins to answer the questions of his critics. And the, the first question comes, uh, okay, then what purpose does the law serve? And... and um, his first answer was it was added because of transgressions, and that's what we've spent a couple of weeks uh, taking a look at, is this, um, it was added for transgressions. Um, that, that's hopefully clear in your understanding now. But that brings us to the second half of uh, verse 19 and, um, and verse 20, really, which are, are kind of coupled together. But let me read them to you and then make a couple of comments, but not much more. Um, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, um, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I want to read you something, uh, just, um, just two real quick sentences. This comes out of a commentary uh, by James Boyce. Now, the, those of you who've been around the Reformed world at all, you've, you've heard of James Boyce. Um, he died several years ago of liver cancer, uh, but um, he's in print numerous times. He's uh, well thought of. He was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia for years. But now he is commenting on verse 20, um, which really is the continuation of that second half of verse 19, Okay. And, and just, just listen to these two sentences. This verse, verse 20, is probably the most obscure verse in Galatians, if not the entire New Testament. Bishop Lightfoot notes that there have been over 250 interpretations of it. Herman Frick raises the figure to 300. That is, he is saying that verse 20 is the most obscure verse in Galatians, if not the whole New Testament. And these other two guys say that there have been some 250 to 300 
interpretations of verse 20 and these words that preceded in verse 19. Now, (laughs) I mean, I don't want to completely cop out on you, but imagine 250 interpretations of one verse. 250 different opinions of the same statement. And, um, you know, you, you wonder, you know, well, is it really, I mean, is it really that important, you know, uh, you know, uh, well, <clears throat> this interpretation skill, um, is, is important. We're going to, we're going to comment on it a little bit later, but let me just tell you what, what I think is the, kind of the majority position as to what this verse and a half the last of uh, verse, uh, half of 19 and the verse 20, what, what, it, what it has to say, um, and then we're going to move hurriedly over to verse 21 before anybody asks a question. Um, um, it is a bit of a digression. That is, um, um, Paul is making his argument about the, the role of the law, and then he uh, thinks of something and he says, and, and, and by the way, um, and then he throws in this other little tidbit, and that is, um, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it, that it, refers to the law. The law was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate before one only, but God is one. Paul makes the point, or is making the point, that the authorship of those two, the authorship of the law and promise, are different. Uh, different in, in this sense. That one had a mediator and the other one didn't. Promise came directly from um, from Jesus or from uh, directly from God uh, as manifested in the finished work of Christ. The law had a mediator. Uh, it was given to a mediator by a guy by the name of Moses, as you may recall. the The point that he's trying to make is the um, is the superiority of the law as opposed uh, just the superiority of the promise as opposed to the law. And what he is suggesting is uh, one evidence of that superiority is that one uh, had a mediator and the other one didn't. Generally speaking, that's what you have there. And um, if you want to check out those other 249 interpretations, I, I bid you my fondest dreams and hopes for you as you try to unravel it. Now, <clears throat> so we're going we're gonna to jump immediately over to verse 21 and, and where we can... Uh, dive into a couple of things. But I want you to keep that little, that little interpretive thing in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to it as we've got it. Now, in verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? There's question number two. You remember we talked about this thing about the ad hominem argument that is Paul is trying to answer questions that he knows his, his, um, his audience is going to ask? Um, uh, okay, Paul... Though the law is inferior uh, and subservient to the promise, um, he is making the point that it is not at all um, antagonistic. The law is not antagonistic to to promise. Um, the, the his objectors are since the law cannot justify, then why don't we just throw it away? Why don't we just discard it? Is the law then against the promises of God? And his answer is, certainly not. Um, It does not oppose the law. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, he goes on, for if there had been a law given, 
which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But no such law exists. If a law had been um, given that granted life, then, then what you would have is, is two routes, two ways that you could be saved. Um, and Paul is saying no such law No such law exists. But the law is not antagonistic to the promise. In fact, the law serves the promise. Um, It's a part of the process of getting people to the promise, as we've looked at for two weeks. It's not a hindrance in people getting to the promise. In fact, um, it's kind of phase one of enjoying and appreciating and grasping the promise. There's a there's an old aphorism that says hunger is the, is the best cook. So the law creates, creates a hunger and drives men towards the promise. Uh, the law makes men more hungry for Christ and, um, and, and, and uh, dispels all this foolishness about my own self-righteousness and my own um, accomplishment. And my, this, this notion that that one could save oneself is dispelled as one examines the law. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a hindrance. It's not antagonistic to the promise. In fact, it serves the promise by um, uh, drawing men to the promise. Now, with, with that in mind, guys, I want to show you something. Um, I want to get real... Um, well, some of you won't enjoy this at all. Um, look at the second half of that verse 21. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. If there were such a law, there's not. There's no such law that exists, but if there had been one given, truly righteousness uh, would have have been by the law. The law would have uh, provided another method by which one could be reconciled. If there was such a law, but there is no such law. Now, guys, I just showed you an interpretive problem in Galatians chapter 3, verse 20. All these opinions. There's another one here. Um, and I want to tell you about it. Because I, I think um, um, the, the average church attender is not really interested in, in wrangling over the, the, the finer details of theological position. You know, just give me, you know, just give me some uh, uh, the, of the heart of the matter and that's all. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to get involved in all of this wrangling, okay? Now, I want to show you what a, what a naive, at least I hope to show you, how naive such a position is. Guys, um, you know one of the commentaries that I'm reading is the commentary by Martin Luther, on the book of Galatians. Martin Luther states that Rome has a position on verse 21. And I want to show it to you. All right? Now now look at the second half of verse 21. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. According to Martin Luther, now I, I, I do not know to what he is appealing. I, I could not point to their place in their theological workbooks. But Luther says 
that Rome's position on the second half of verse 21, if there had been a law given which could have given life, Rome's position is that this is a reference to ceremonial law only, not moral law. <laughs> now, guys, you think, well, what, you know, why would you quibble over it? <clears throat> Oh, my gosh, ladies and gentlemen. Look, let's, let's read it again. For if there had been a ceremonial law given, which could have given life, truly righteous would have been by ceremonial law. That is Rome's interpretation of that last sentence of verse 21. Which leaves the door wide open to suggest that though there not be a ceremonial law by which anyone could be saved, there is definitely... A moral law by which one might be reconciled to God. Gang, if you make that one interpretive mistake, you end up with an entirely different gospel. If you conclude as Rome has, that um, verse 21b is talking about ceremonial law, not moral law, then the gospel that you promulgate is a gospel that says there is a moral law, there's no ceremonial law, we all know that, says Rome, but there is a moral law. This is, only re- this is only referring, says Rome, this is only referring to ceremonial law. But not moral law. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the gospel preached by Rome is one that suggests that if you follow a certain moral code, you can reconcile yourself. And so, its interpretive grid is to tell you that this is only talking about ceremonial law. Do you see that? You make that one, what you might call, small, interpretive mistake. By by viewing this as nothing more than ceremonial law, and you begin preaching a law, a, a gospel, that promotes a moral code by which men are saved. Make that one mistake, but it's, just a little one, isn't it? No, ladies and gentlemen, it's not a little one. It's an enormous one. <clears throat> I, I, I think I've told you this story before in here. Um, you know what? In fact, I want you to see it. I, I want you to go um, to Judges chapter 12. Judges 12. Um, Remember the you remember the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a story about the deliverers that God raises up to help Israel out of their quandaries. Um, okay, um, uh, and and one of those deliverers is a guy by the name of Jephthah. You remember him? Um, and Jephthah's the guy that says, uh, "Lord, if you deliver us from the Midianites." Uh, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out my door. 
and uh, God delivers him from the Midianites. And uh, the first thing that comes out the door is his daughter. That's a little problem. Um, and uh, that, that's this guy, Jephthah. All right. But the story of Jephthah goes on. All right. <clears throat> um, chapter 12. The people of Ephraim are really upset with Jephthah because they didn't get used in the great deliverance of Midian. Uh, and Jephthah has, has to steer these or navigate these, um, these political waters. But look at verse 5. You Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when an Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, then say Shibboleth. And he would say, now look at the word, ladies and gentlemen. Sibboleth. Look at the one previous. Shibboleth. And they would say, Sibboleth. For he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. Why? He mispronounced a word which betrayed his identity. It betrayed his, na- it betrayed his nationality. Guys, in the Hebrew language, there, is, um, there are two um, letters. Uh, one is called Shin. The other is called Sin. Like we got an A, B, C, D, E, F. They have two letters. It's Shin, Sin. It would be pronounced S-H-I-N or Sin. <clears throat> Um, in the, in, in the Hebrew language, these words, I mean, these letters mean different things. And the only difference is on which side that little point is. This is a shibboleth. This is a, this is a shin or shibboleth. Look at your text. Or if it's a sin, it's shibboleth. There's a missing H. This one's pronounced with a sh. This one's pronounced as a s. Seems awfully small, doesn't it? To make such a big deal out of a shibboleth and a sibboleth? I mean, you people are going to worry about that? Well, ladies and gentlemen, when, in, in, in Judges chapter 12, whether you like this story or not, the mispronunciation of a word betrayed one's nationality. And as a result, if they mispronounced the word, it cost them their life. They should have said shibboleth and not sibboleth. But the only difference is that little thing right there. That's the only thing. I mean, what are you making a big deal out of that for? I tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, to say, okay, go back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. I mean, it's just a difference in interpretation. I mean, Rome says that only means ceremonial law. But ladies and gentlemen, if you make that one small interpretive mistake, little bitty thing, if that's the only mistake you make, 
Do you see where that takes you? It takes you to another gospel. Because, of course, we'd all agree that there's no ceremonial law that by which me can be saved. But <laughs> there's a moral law that you could follow. And you can write yourself with God by the, uh, following up that moral law. Ladies and gentlemen, all, all I'm trying to say to you is, all these, this little bitty interpreted mistake here, or difference here that you see as to what Rome says as opposed to what Protestantism says. And right here, Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, you'll end up in a different place entirely because of one little mistake. <laughs> so those of you who... Um, who don't want to grind down to the to the uh, to the you know the nitty gritty of theological truth? Fine, fine. Just go ahead and say Sibboleth, and it'll cost you your life. As opposed to accurately handling the last half of that verse, ladies and gentlemen, that's not talking about ceremonial law. It's talking about all law. There is no law. Um, there is no law that will um, ever right you in the presence of God. None. There, all of them will fail you. And, and that's what Paul is saying. For if there had been a law given which could have given life. But there is no such law. There's no law. That gives life. Oh, if there were. Yeah, I mean, we'd have a big problem. I mean, we'd have a, we'd have a contradiction. We'd have two paths to heaven. But there is no such law. Oh, it's a small problem. Just a small interpretive difference. No, it isn't, ladies and gentlemen. It's enormous. It might look small to you. It might look this small to you. But it leads you into a different place. Just by making that one mistake. Okay. <clears throat> um, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, gang, I pointed this out back in uh, the uh, chapter 2, I think. Um, no, it was in chapter 3, verse 8. You, you'll notice in verse 22... Um, but the scripture has confined all under sin. Guys, um, in, in literature, there are, there are literary devices. Allegory um, uh, is, a, is a literary device. Um, uh, hyperbole is a literary device. Well, one of the literary devices is what we call metonymy. Metonymy. Um, a metonymy is something when you use one word to represent something else. For instance, if, if, if I said to you, the position of the White House is completely contrary um, to that of evangelical Christianity, <laughs> which would be true. 
Um, if I said the position of the White House, do you know who I'd be referring to? I'm saying White House, but it's a metonymy that refers to something or someone else. That's a, that's a, that's a literary device. So notice what it said here. The scripture has confined us all under... That's not, that's not right. The scripture has confined all under sin. Now, f- folks, did scripture confine us under sin? No. no. Who confined us under sin? <laughs> that would be God. But do you notice, ladies and gentlemen, what this metonymy... The the equation within this metonymy. Scripture equals what? God. Guys, in one of the um, subtle ways that the Bible tells you that this is not just an average book, It uses this device here saying Scripture is confined all under sin when in fact what it means is God is confined all under sin because you know what, ladies and gentlemen? Scripture and God. (laughs) Same thing. I don't want to say same. But um, that Scripture is something that God gave us. Um, But... The point of the, of the statement is that God has confined all under sin. Guys, um, as early as Genesis 6, verse 5, um, you find this statement. Genesis 6, now. That's, that's, um, that's five chapters in. We're in chapter 6 in the Bible, and it makes this statement. Um... For every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You remember that? That was the statement that preceded the flood. God looks from heaven and he says, um, um, ever since Genesis 3, by the way, Genesis 1 and 2 were about creation, so he only had chapters 3 and 4 and 5. So it took us three chapters uh, and then everything is ruined. God looks from heaven, and, and, and this is his assessment of the created order. For every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Did you get that? Every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That's in Genesis 6.5. Um, all I'm simply saying is Scripture has confined all under sin. You bet. Um, Guys, this has been... uh, God has made this assessment that Paul is alluding to in verse 22. He's made this ever since Genesis 6 verse 5. That they're all... And and, and this language... um, I love this language. They're all confined... Confined under sin. It's, it's, it's like, it's, you know, guys, um, 
I don't know whether this is a privilege or whether it's a, it's a horrible responsibility. But do you know what I get to see more than I want to see? What I get to see is how sin that people choose wrecks everything. Hmm, what situation did you get yourself in? Oh, well, you know, uh, how'd you get in there? Sin. That's what sin does. Not only does it deceive us, it confines us. It brings us into this bondage. You know what? You know that's true. You do. I mean, if you're not in one now, you've been in one. And how did you get in it? Either your sin or somebody else's. And sin has just made everything gunky. We're all trapped. We're all enslaved. That's what sin's done, ladies and gentlemen. And the text goes on. Scripture is confined all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Um, here we are, right back again to the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone. And there goes Paul again. You know, um, trying to remind us that this is, what, this is what sin has done to us. And the only route out of that confinement, the only route out, this is marvelous language, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who get themselves baptized. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who obey the Ten Commandments. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who are baptized by immersion. None of that, ladies and gentlemen. All he wants you to recognize is, here's what sin has done. It has confined us. And there's one route of escape out. And the route is through promise, by faith, in Jesus Christ to those who, who believe. There it is all over again, ladies and gentlemen. He continues to bombard us with one simple resolution to the problem. That is, he certainly doesn't appeal to our ability to obey and keep the Ten Commandments. Because if there had been a law given, oh, but there is no law given, ladies and gentlemen. The only route of escape is simply that. That the promise, by faith in Jesus Christ, the promise is given to whom? Those who believe. Believe in what? They've placed their, their, own, their whole trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Gang, I hope you hear that often here. I remember hearing a young man, um, uh, his name was David, years ago. And he had, he had become a Christian in our youth program in, in, in Florida. 
And um, that's not true. It wasn't in Florida. It was in Mississippi. And um, he described his commitment to Jesus Christ like this. He said it's like casting oneself and being spread eagle on a rock. Can't you see that? Isn't that a, I mean, I love that mental picture. Uh, so let me, let, me, let me just insert it in the text. Um, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who hurl themselves spread eagle on the rock of Christ's finished work. Is that where you find yourself tonight? Hurled, spread eagle, resting solely in the finished work of this Jesus. That promise, ladies and gentlemen, is only to those who believe. All else perish. We'll stop there. Our Father, um, would you remind your people that the beauty of the gospel is is trumpeted over and over and over again um, because we're so blasted hard-headed. Left to ourselves, we will always default to some kind of law works, some kind of obedience so that we can take credit for having saved ourselves. And once again, we are confronted with the, with the fact that what sin has done to us is that it's rendered us confined in this bondage and the only way out is um, by casting ourselves upon the finished work of Christ Jesus. Father, if you brought anybody here tonight who has not yet who has not yet seen the necessity of throwing themselves um, putting their full weight upon Christ's finished work, would you cause them to see it now? And Father, um, make, us, make us skilled in our, our efforts to read and understand your word right. And Lord, if there has been error spoken in this room tonight, would you stop up the ears of your people? But if truth has been spoken, would you use it for the encouragement and for the blessing of all those who are here? Being reminded again that sin is our enemy, the finished work of Christ is the solution, and our obedience to him is now the righteous expression of gratitude to what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Thank you for the opportunity to say that again. We pray, make our prayer tonight in the name of Jesus.